Good morning. It's Friday, the 21st of July, and I'm Govind Raj Raj in transit from Mumbai, India's financial capital and most drained out city. Also, we are on our 50th episode. So thank you for all your encouragement and good wishes and everything that you've sent our way. Our top stories and themes. India's markets are going even stronger. Geo Financial hits it out of the park. Infosys net profits up, but attrition down sharply to 17%, reflecting shifts in the tech job market. Massive renewable energy projects are announced, including by Adani. How many will materialize and when? Who was India's best finance minister in the early years? And hmm, Netflix finally cracks down on password sharing in India. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Geofinancial starts with a value of $20 billion. Geofinancial Services Limited, a Mukesh Ambani company that was spun off just yesterday from parent Reliance Industries, commanded a market capitalization of nearly $20 billion or 160,000 crores when it was priced around 261 rupees per share in a complex process involving a special trading session on the exchanges created to discover its value. And the market put the value at for a business that barely exists, as I mentioned, at $20 billion. This, in a very broad sense, would put most tech startups to shame. The actual listing of the stock will take a month or so. And shareholders of Reliance Industries got one share of JFSL for every share of Reliance Industries they held. The market is paying, in a general sense, for the same execution capability that it always rewards Reliance Group companies with. And we will learn more about that shortly. Also, perhaps, the inevitable big brother, literally and figuratively, has arrived in the modern finance space. Yesterday, I spoke of how Bajaj FinServe was spun off Bajaj Auto by late founder Rahul Bajaj, and thus also ensuring a smooth transition to the next generation with Rajiv Bajaj taking over the two-wheeler arm and Sanjeev Bajaj taking over the finance businesses. The Mukesh-Anil Ambani split did not go that well and turned instead into a bitter fight after founder Dhirubhai Ambani died without leaving a will. The market perception, at least in Mumbai, was that while Anil may or may not succeed with businesses like Power and Telecom that he inherited as part of his settlement, he would make a success of Reliance Capital. That did not happen either, and Reliance Capital, with substantive assets and joint ventures in life and general insurance, has gone into bankruptcy. And now Mukesh has $20 billion of currency in stock and value, assuming it stays there to take some big bets. Geofinancial, by the way, should land below Bajaj FinServe, which I just referred to and got spun off from Bajaj Auto, which is around $57 billion in market capitalization or 460,000 crores. But it will be ahead of others like Cholamandalam Finance and many others. Fintech companies and payment platforms are not even in the reckoning as I see it at this point. JFSL has a former ICICI bank hand, Hitesh Setia as CEO, and also former ICICI bank chairman KV Kamat to guide the company. A precise business plan for JFSL is expected to be revealed in an upcoming AGM or Annual General Meeting for Reliance Industries, usually the time when Reliance lays out its ambitious plans and sets targets. Presumably, that is as much for everyone within the company as it is for outside. The expectation, of course, is that unlike the Reliance Capital days, Geo now rides on a substantial retail footprint. Reliance Retail has about 18,000 retail stores, 249 million registered customer base, while Geo's subscriber base, and I mean the telecom side, is about 430 million. 
I'm a little skeptical of automatic transitions between consumers of this kind, let's say mobile phone or retail store to some banking and financial product. Remember, the banks themselves, including HDFC Bank, now a much larger entity with HDFC folded in, is also on the prowl. Logic says India's addressable market for cross-selling and resultant profits is big, but not huge. And what is big is being chased by everyone, including pesky phone calls, usually from Bajaj FinServ, though its head Sanjeev Bajaj recently promised they would seize and desist such direct and troublesome approaches. Now, which brings me to the point that companies like Bajaj Auto use the same logic to approach the customer to buy a two-wheeler, get finance on the go. So some cross-selling opportunities are already captured in a manner of speaking. In which case, Reliance is more likely betting on new business and sheer growth and thus beyond the existing market, which is very likely. The good thing about Reliance is that usually lays out all its cards on the table and is not very cloak and dagger about things, mostly because it believes it will overwhelm with scale. So we will know and see soon. I was lucky to catch market veteran and perhaps the best Reliance watcher I have met, Devin Choksi of DR Choksi Finserve, to get a sense on why the market, or for that matter, he is so bullish on JFSL. And I began by asking him that precise question, particularly so for a company that had no real revenue at this point. So I think the very important thing since this particular business is NBSC business and they are required to have the borrowers on one side and they also require to have the money on the other side. So when the money is being distributed to the borrowers, there you require the technology platform, which is we call it this, there's a fintech platform. So if Reliance Geo platform has the ability to provide the fintech platform along with the pay bank facility and Reliance industry has the uh, loan book available with it, I think so, basically having ability to lend money, of course, I think raising money from elsewhere also. And on the other side, uh, you have the borrowers in form of uh, different, different subscribers or the customers that you have. Reliance Retail has about 18,000 plus stores, I think, where the retail customer is consuming goods worth about 3 lakh crores on a yearly basis. So they are the ones, the typical merchants who are basically associated with Reliance Geo for selling the Geo Martin and their grocery services, they would be their consumer of credit as well. Money Control, which is their financial portal, where I think they have highest number of subscribers, they are the ones I think they would basically buy the financial products like insurance, mutual fund, depository services, or brokerage for that matter. And even the loan against shares or margin funding products, etc. And finally, Geo Platform, where you have 45 crore subscribers who are basically consuming variety of e-commerce packages including video and entertainment, gaming and other e-commerce activities. So all in all put together, this company is starting with a very natural advantage of having higher amount of customers already acquired in different different verticals and at the same time 1,40,000 crore worth of network that they are assuming to begin with is basically the larger than the network of uh, the Axis Bank and Porter Bank. So, if you look at me, of course, I think much larger compared to Bajaj, three times larger compared to Bajaj, the largest NBFC company. So, that is also an advantage coming to them. And as I explained, I think your geo platform with the technology around is giving you the edge because of uh, the ability to roll out these services in a quicker time. So, in next three to five years' time, I believe that uh, the company could be in a position to address the market of around 7 lakh to 10 lakh crore worth of loan which would be placing them in among the highest in the industries uh, as far as helping their ability to extend this kind of predations. 
So when you say net worth, uh, Devin, you're referring to uh, market value or uh, actual net worth? So if you look at, I think, the actual net worth of the company, you find that I think about 17,000 crore worth of net worth is actual net worth of the company, which is basically invested in Reliance's shares, 6% stake of Reliance. And if you actually look at, I think, the uh, cash net worth in the hand that they have, plus I think the market value of 6% of Reliance's shares that you had in this total figure comes out to 1,40,000 crore. Right. Okay. And you're also assuming that uh, they will pull business from other NBFCs, including uh, Bajaj, who's obviously the biggest right now. My feeling says that I think they will not require to, frankly speaking, because currently Bajaj has its own set of customers. They have got their own alliances with different, different manufacturers for the selling of the products be it LG, be it Samsung or be it whoever that uh, FMEG business, I think, whoever has been. So Bajaj has already got the uh, affiliated relationship with them. Plus, Bajaj has already got, I think, the customers onto their platform. So, frankly, need for the customer to shift away from Bajaj and go to Geo would arise only when Geo ends up offering them significantly large amount of benefit vis-a-vis Bajaj, which I don't think that is a reality immediately. So, I think let us not get into that part of the speculation. In my reading, I think there will be an equal opportunity for players like uh, Geo, along with I think the existing players who are technologically equipped to handle the business, uh, including Bajaj. So I would think that since the economy size is growing from 3.5 trillion to say 10 to 20 trillion dollars uh, in next 12 years' time, I think everybody would have enough amount of opportunity to land because I think the size of the cake itself is growing. So each and every bank will have the role to play. Each and every NBFC will have a role to play. So I don't think it will be at a cost of one NBFC to another NBFC or one bank to another bank. I think as long as they are technologically equipped to handle the subject efficiently, I would think that I think they would have enough amount of business to talk about for each one of them. Right. And uh, last question and somewhat broad. Uh, financials have a huge weightage in our indices, portfolios, whether it's retail or institutional. So. How do you see Reliance and its financial arm, which is Geofinancial, uh, stacking up against its own siblings, which is Reliance Industries or its uh, telecom company and so on? Uh, that must be a loaded question, going, I guess. <laughs> I would think that I think the financials would probably uh, surpass the existing Reliance uh, O2C business if they end up reporting the numbers which I have just now spelled out. Suppose if they end up reporting 10 lakh crore worth of numbers, loan book at the end of the fifth year from now and on that loan book they end up reporting a name of around 80,000 crores to 1 lakh crore. My reading says that I think there would be far more exceeding the market value of the current Reliance's O2C business, not the retail and the geo platform business but only O2C business. The O2C business currently is being valued at around, in the current market price is being valued at 550 rupees. Which is according to me, I think is a very cheap discount. I think it should be eventually quoting at around 1250 rupees, the O2C business alone. But that's a separate subject that we can talk later on. I feel that I think the uh, geo platform or geo financial services right now is going to be the largest, I think, market cap provider going forward if they end up achieving the numbers which I'm talking about. Right, uh, Devin, thank you so much for uh, joining me and uh, I will come back to you for a deeper dive on these numbers and who could in a sense or essentially be the next big uh, financial giant in coming years. Thank you so much. Thank you, Govind, so much. Pleasure talking to you.
Meanwhile, against some expectations, though with much hope, India's Sensex once again touched a new peak yesterday of 67,616 before closing 474 points up at 67,572. As you can imagine, peak 70 or 70,000 is now in sight. The Nifty 50 inched closer to the 20,000 mark, a development that brought much cheer and delight to all Nifty watchers, of which there are quite a few. The 50 stock index hit another high of 19,992 in intraday trade before closing 146 points up at 19,979. A quick reference point here, ITC, the cigarettes to consumer products and hotel stock has now become the seventh company in the country to see its market value cross the 6 trillion or 600,000 crore mark. This is also to obviously remind all those ITC stock naysayers about what they missed and more importantly when. Result season continues as more pour in. IT major emphasis on Thursday reported a roughly 11% rise in net profits in the quarter that ended on June 30th to 5,945 crore as compared to 5,360 crore in the same quarter last year. Now, Infosys has had a good run in the last quarter with some unusually large deals driving growth. Revenues grew about 10% year-on-year to 37,933 crore. Now, significantly, Attrition levels have declined for Infosys to around 17% after hovering around 28% around this time last year and steadily declining since then. Whether the falling attrition levels reflect some general industry stabilization is not clear to me right now, but it does suggest that job opportunities are not as easy to come by as they were in the COVID-era frenzy for talent. Infosys employs about 336,000 people now, down slightly from earlier. Big green energy projects are announced. When will they materialize? We saw some big green energy announcements this week, notably by the Adani Group, which set a 45 gigawatt target of renewable capacity by 2030 or in seven years' time. Half of this is likely to come from a 20 gigawatt single project spread over 72,000 acres in the deserts of Gujarat. The Adanis already claim an operational green energy capacity of 8 gigawatt. Adani's promise must be seen in the context of India's larger renewable energy targets, much of which will be private sector or private capital driven. And savings and shifts must happen up and down the line since it's also about fuels used for generation of energy as much as what it is used for. For example, electrification of cars takes out fossil fuel more effectively if the electricity is also generated through renewable methods and not burning more fossil fuel. A paper titled, Can India Become a Green Superpower? by climate scientist Dr. Arunabha Ghosh, also CEO of the Council for Energy, Environment and Water, or CEEW, and Vice Chair of the United Nations Committee for Development Policy, says in a foreign affairs papers that coal accounts for a whopping 57% of the country's primary energy consumption, oil 27% and natural gas 6%. Non-fossil fuel sources such as solar, hydropower and nuclear energy make up just 10%. To achieve net zero, India must therefore dramatically reconfigure its energy sources, he says. In the future, much of the country's economy will have to be powered by clean electricity. Other parts will have to be powered by clean fuel. For instance, under certain scenarios, India's industrial and trucking sectors will need to get at least 80% of their energy from green electricity by 2070, and the remainder will have to come from other clean energy sources such as green hydrogen or sustainable biofuels. Hitting this figure, argues Dr. Ghosh, will require extraordinary feats of development to upgrade the country's infrastructure. 
As part of net zero transition, for example, India wants to deploy 500,000 megawatts worth of clean electricity infrastructure by 2030. Right now, it is about 125,000 megawatts. So, where do we stand on all these targets, missions and objectives and how geared are we to achieve it? I reached out to Dr. Arunabha Ghosh and I began by asking him to take us through where we were in the journey at this point before coming to where we are headed. So, Govind, the, the way to look at this is that we had a 2022 target and then we had a 2030 target. The 2022 target was to get to 175,000 megawatts of renewables by 2022. Uh, we didn't quite hit that target, but we didn't fall short too much either. We are at about 172,000 megawatts. Of course, this includes the legacy capacity that we had with large hydro. Uh, but pure renewables, we still did build out quite a bit. And we've got about 115,000 megawatts of solar, wind, biomass, small hydro capacity. So overall, what it meant was that we had a different kind of a 2030 target, which would be that 40% of our electricity capacity would come from non-fossil sources. Uh, we reached that target by 2021. So now we have to think about a different 2030 target where we need to get that capacity mix to 50% uh, from non-fossil sources. And there's also the target that government has set for 500,000 megawatts of non-fossil capacity. This basically is a breathless marathon that we'll have to be on. Can you break up that non-fossil sources, Arunapa? So if you take 500,000 megawatts, a lot of it has to be solar, wind. So about 450,000 or four, let's say 420,000, 30,000 megawatts would have to be what I call pure renewables. Uh, Large-scale solar, small-scale solar, wind, small hydro, geothermal, take your pick. So in that, I would say that about 250 to 280,000 megawatts will be solar. Another 150-odd would be wind and other sources. And then the remainder will be large hydro and some nuclear. This basically means that every hour for the rest of the decade, we have to deploy about 11 to 12 megawatts of renewables in terms of capacity installation. Can you put this in the context of the overall energy consumption and power consumption? Let's start with power consumption, which is an important point, because capacity does not translate automatically to the share of power that is being generated because renewables have lower efficiency. So right now, we have about 21-22% of our power generation coming from renewables. That, if we get to about 500,000 megawatts of capacity, that might translate to closer to about 30%, maybe 35% of our power generation coming from renewables. Now, this is where the double transition of India needs to happen in terms of energy. One is, of course, that we have to build out more and more clean energy sources. But the other is that most of our energy itself has to now come from electricity rather than other energy sources like solid fuels like coal, liquid fuels like oil or gaseous fuels like gas. So the more the economy gets electrified, it could be our homes, it could be our offices, but it could also be our transport systems, 
It could also be many of our small industries that don't need high-intensity heat. The more all of that gets electrified, you get efficient energy source, and then you make that energy source clean by having that coming from renewable energy. Right. And uh, in terms of who is going to do this, I mean, how are you seeing the split between private capital and government investments and so on? The one thing that has been quite encouraging in, uh, I mean, several things have been encouraging. Well, one thing that has been quite encouraging is that the bulk of that capacity has been built out by the private, which was originally not the case with our coal based thermal power capacity. It was originally, historically, a lot more state owned. And then we had some private investments coming in the 2000. So the investments will have to come from the private sector and to an extent some state-owned companies that are also looking to go big on renewables. For instance, NTPC wants to have a big play on solar and renewables. Indian Oil wants to have a big play on green hydrogen and so forth. The bigger question is, where will the investment come? And there I think we have to think about the if you look at all our targets for renewables, for green hydrogen, for electric mobility, it's about $500-550 billion of investment that will have to happen over this decade. And not all of this will come from domestic sources. So how does India tap into international institutional investment but get it at low costs of finance with the risks of currency fluctuation sufficiently hedged? Because then that is this enormous volume of tens of trillions of dollars of capital that's sitting out there that could be attracted into what is already the world's fourth largest renewable energy market. Arunaba, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thank you. Who was India's best finance minister in the early years? Shaping India's economic policies in the early years was no mean feat. As we look back, we can see what the thinking was that shaped many of our laws and approaches to laws, whether the socialistic model or the many institutions that govern India's financial system. Independent India has witnessed about 28 finance ministers. But only a handful of them have left their mark on the Exchequer or North Block, the headquarters of the Indian Finance Ministry. I had the opportunity to speak to Ashok K. Bhattacharya, well-known financial journalist, editor and author of From Independence to Emergency, India's Finance Ministers 1947-77 to and a story of India's unforgettable finance ministers who shaped India's economy in the first 30 years. In a much longer conversation, which will play out over the weekend in the Core Report Weekend Edition, I asked him about the independence of finance ministers and the role that prime ministers play in India's economic policy and decision making. There is a qualitative difference that I see from what is to happen in the first 30 years and what happens is happening now. The similarity is even then the prime minister would take the final call. And even now, the Prime Minister takes the final call on economic policy making implemented by the finance ministers. But during those days, the finance ministers had the courage of conviction to disagree with the Prime Minister. And if the Prime Minister still insisting on what he wants to be done, then the finance ministers would quit. Now, I don't think that we are seeing that part anymore where the finance ministers don't disagree with their prime ministers to an extent where 
there is a principal difference and on that issue, the finance minister decides to say goodbye. If you take the classic example of John Mathai, India's second finance minister, who actually disagreed with this prime minister on the idea of setting up the planning commission because he believed that setting up the planning commission may be good as an institution, but it will unnecessarily dilute the role of economic policy making undertaken by the finance ministry. So there has to be a very clear demarcation of what kind of role the planning commission should play and what kind of role the finance minister should play. Since that clarity did not come about, so John Mathai decided to put in his papers. And Nehru sat on that resignation letter for more than a month and then decided to accept his resignation and going for, guess who? A former RBI governor, a man who had originally given the idea to Nehru about setting up the planning commission. And he is made the finance minister to implement him, Siri Deshmukh. And Siri Deshmukh, too, after six years, has to quit again on a policy difference of how do you reorganize states. And in this time, Bombay, Bombay was the financial capital even then. So when Siri Deshmukh realized that his prime minister is not agreeing to the idea of not tinkering with the structure the way the prime minister wanted to, so he decided to quit. So I think that's an era where the finance ministers would listen to their prime minister. They will have to listen to the prime minister. Prime minister will have the call on, on the final policy. But the finance ministers would have the courage to say, I am sorry, I disagree, therefore I quit. And hmm, Netflix cracks down in India too. And it's finally happened. Netflix, the streaming giant, is unveiling a policy to combat password sharing in India, which it has done in a hundred other countries already. The company, which has about 230 million subscribers worldwide, said it will be sending a mail to members sharing Netflix outside their households in India that they essentially cannot. Now, this was expected, of course, but there was a counter view of sorts that India would get slightly preferential treatment here, being an emerging market with great opportunities and all of that. Quite likely, the best way to capitalize on this opportunity is to make people pay for their entertainment. India, of course, is a notoriously penny-pinching market for media and entertainment consumption. Ask the journalist in me and I can testify to how advertisers usually are made to pay for the content and the privilege to push their advertising to consumers like all of us. Which, of course, distorts the content model and has been quite excessively in recent years, more so in television. Now, this, of course, has changed in recent years as people do pay more for entertainment and media content than they ever did. But not obviously as much as streamers like Netflix would like us to. So on that note, happy streaming. That's it for me. Look forward to connecting with you over the weekend on our special core report weekend edition with journalist and author A.K. Padacharya. Have a great weekend ahead and see you Monday. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>